The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking back at the 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference held in Paris and trying to better understand what happened there and what the agreement means for the future. But first, let's get better acquainted with the climate science and models that prompted the Paris Climate Conference in the first place. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell. I'm here with Pierce Forster, director of the Priestley International Center for Climate and professor of physical climate change at the University of Leeds. His expertise is in quantifying the causes of climate change and how the climate responds. Hello, Pierce. Good afternoon, Tesrae. Good afternoon, Tamsin. And also joining us is Dr. Tamsin Edwards, a lecturer in environmental sciences at the Open University in the UK. Tamsin is active in talking about climate science with the public, tweeting as Flimsin and writing for Vice News, Guardian Online, and her PLOS blog, All Models Are Wrong. And she's regularly interviewed by the media about the naughty issues of climate science and modeling. Good to, he- good to have you here, Tamsin. Hi, good afternoon. All right. So to give all of us some background for the episode, uh, what do current models tell us about the possible future of climate change and how it might affect the planet? Well, there are two aspects to climate predictions. There's what we do in terms of population, you know, technology changes, energy use and so on. Um, and then what the climate does in response to that. And the way climate scientists typically think about this um is in scenarios. So we have a kind of abstract way of thinking about the changes in energy use and so on, and then say, well, what will the climate do in response to that? And at the moment, we're using these um, very unfriendly named scenarios called RCP, Representative Concentration Pathways. And the, the sort of business as usual or business more than usual scenario is called RCP 8.5. And the model predictions for the global mean temperature change um, between the pre-industrial period and the end of the century for that sort of top-end scenario um, is kind of around the three to five and a half degrees of warming. Um, And for the kind of lowest of the four scenarios called RCP 2.6, the models uh, give about a two and three chance of staying below two degrees. So kind of a one to two and a half degrees sort of range uh, since pre-industrial. And those... uh, those are just basically possible futures, uh, what-if scenarios. They're not trying to say we know exactly what population and energy changes and so on will be and land use changes. They're just saying if this happens, we think the climate will do this. Well, now, how confident are we in the predictive quality of climate models? Well, I do think we can be quite confident in terms of, in terms of their, their ability to predict changes in surface temperature. So they are quite good. Uh, they do get the right sort of temperature change through time and they do reproduce quite effectively the historical temperature changes going further back in time. So they are quite good when it comes to temperature, but when it comes to some other aspects of climate response, particularly like changes in rainfall, they do really not do quite a good job. So we we have quite a lot of difficulty predicting what parts of the world will see in 
increases in rainfall and pasture well where we see a decrease. Um, but we are beginning to get some understanding of those changes. But we do still have some confidence in things like rainfall extreme. Like we can say with some degree of certainty that as the temperature goes up, we will see an increase in rainfall extremes. So there are some aspects of climate change we have good confidence in and some aspects we do not. And another example of that, if I can add uh, one, is sea level rise. So we're confident that sea level is going to go up. The global average sea level is going to go up in the future. Um, what there, There's quite a lot of uncertainty on how much. Is it going to go up quite a lot or really a lot? Um, and of course, the other uncertainty is how that uh, changes around the world. So actually, in some places, um, the sea level rise might be small or might even go down because of changes actually in the ocean uh, circulation patterns. Um, and in other places, it will be a lot bigger than the global average. So you have a sort of for sea level rise. It's an example where you have uh, a, a lot of confidence in the direction of change, which is up, uh, but less confidence in the details of that change. So now I understand that our climate science models are getting better. So what what does that mean, and how would we know <laughs> that they're getting better? It's a really subtle and interesting question because we can test climate models with all of the um, data about weather and planetary change that we have. Um, some of it reaches back, um, you know, not just decades but centuries, uh, direct measurements with you know, thermometers and um, all different aspects of weather um, and more recently satellite data. And we can compare that with what climate models um, simulate in the past. If you take a climate model and, you know, start in the year 1850 and run it forward to today, you can say, you know, given the greenhouse gas um, input and the changes in the sun and volcanoes and so on, um, what, does, it, does it get the kind of temperature and other weather patterns that we know happened? Um, but what's difficult is, you know, you only have so much data. The climate is a very complex system um, and climate is also a long term phenomenon, you know, several decades. So that kind of limits how many tests you can do. Um, but certainly there's a lot of very thorough testing with the data that we do have of lots of different aspects of climate change reaching quite far back in time. Um, and also actually looking further back in time into the distant past, we can look at indirect sort of estimates of what past climate change was like, for example, in the last ice age. Um, and so we, we can basically build up a sort of aggregate picture. And that picture has been um, improving over time. Um, that's absolutely correct. I think it's important to rephrase slightly what we're trying to task and we're really trying to ask if these simulations are really fit for purpose because perhaps if we're just trying to predict the globally average surface temperature they will do a very good job of predicting that temperature change but there are some aspects they will not be so good at predicting. So it depends what we want to try and do with them. For example, if you're a town planner for a particular town in Canada, you might want to show precise details of the way your climate will change through time. 
uh, and to clearly predict those changes are far more challenging uh, and and we perhaps won't ever be able to predict perfectly. Absolutely, and I think um, a nice, concise way of expressing that um, I think is so important to us climate scientists and other modellers um, is a phrase by uh, a guy called George Box, a brilliant statistician who sadly died a couple of years ago, uh, which I named my blog after, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So an, a model will never be perfect. It doesn't. It can never simulate every tiny process on the planet. We don't understand every process on the planet well enough to put into a model. And so we know that, you know, it's not going to be a perfect representation of the planet, but we know its limits, and so we know what we can use it for. So even if climate models are getting better over time and getting better at uh, reproducing the past, we always try to build in a tolerance of error, um, a kind of a conservatism, um, just trying to allow for the fact that uh, we know they're not perfect and we know that we may have um, not reproduced everything perfectly, that there may be surprises in the future that we haven't thought of. So in a way, we try not to reduce the uncertainty too much, uh, but just enough. Well, so now I'm I'm wondering then, with all that being said, are we able to tell which countries or areas are going to see the most severe early effects of climate change or maybe are already experiencing them? Well, we can certainly tell where we do expect climate change first to emerge from its background variation. And these are in the tropical countries because the typical tropical country normally does have quite an equitable climate without much variation from one year to the next particularly. So, in fact, for these countries, a relatively tiny change in, in the temperature, or in fact the temperature change we have witnessed since pre-industrial of around one degree centigrade really does have a big effect on the climate of the countries and it really does push them into something they haven't experienced before. Uh, 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 and I do think it's very unfortunate that it also typically many of these tropical countries are also some of the most vulnerable ones to climate change as well. They don't necessarily have the preparedness or the infrastructure to really cope with it as well. So they're some of the most vulnerable countries. Uh, and they're also typically the ones that are, are not responsible for climate change. So they have a particularly unfair, if you like. Yes, I was going to. If I can just follow on, um, in terms of the the biggest climate change, uh, one important area, of course, uh, for Canadian listeners is the Arctic, where the changes are going to be much, well, are much bigger than the global average, and we're already seeing these um, big changes in the sea ice coverage uh, in the minimum sea ice in September, as we know. Um, and it's against the background of large variability. So it's different from the tropics where you have small variability. Um, but the, the biggest absolute changes are probably uh, those of the Arctic. 
So to give a bit of context as well, um, in the global average, uh, although we see, you know, very different regional changes, the global average, I think, is a difficult number to get a feel for. If we're talking about three, four, five degrees of warming in the future under the, the highest of the four scenarios, um, or perhaps even more, that's a, about as much warming since the pre-industrial period as we saw cooling when we were in the last, the height of the last ice age, about 20,000 years ago. So there were great ice sheets covering um, across, obviously, parts of the North America and Northern Europe. Uh, it really looked like quite a different world. And that was only three, four, five degrees um, or so colder than today as a global average. But of course, regionally, some places were much colder if you were close to or on top of these big ice sheets. Uh, then it was really a lot colder uh, than it is, say, in Canada today. So I think, um, in a sense, it's useful to have that picture of the regional change being big somewhere like the Arctic. And, you know, if you, if you imagine something like 10 degrees of warming in the Arctic, that feels like a more substantial number than these two or three degrees in the global average. But just to give context for the global average, we're talking roughly the same amount of warming potentially this century as we've seen um, since the height of the last ice age to the pre-industrial period. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Piers Forster and Tamsin Edwards about climate models. So a little later on in the show, uh, we are going to speak to Yamid Danyet and Richard Black about the politics and processes of uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. But I do have a couple of questions on the more science side of that agreement. So uh, can you explain this whole two Celsius limit? What What is that referring to? Well, in a sense... It's a slightly abstract target. You know, it's a round number which is um, big enough to make uh, a difference uh, and small enough to be um, potentially achievable and to avoid the worst impact. So it's 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 a sen- it's in a sense um, an ideal, an abstract target. It's been around for decades. This idea since the 70s of two degrees uh, being a limit. It's only been put into policy, you know, in more in more recent years than that. And it's it's really it's it's even if it's an artificial threshold, it's been a useful way to um, encapsulate the kind of scale of changes we can think about the warming up to two degrees as being broadly like. We, we've already seen um, one degree of warming, and so it will be a bit more than that. And that seems like a sort of a useful t- uh, threshold versus things like three, four, five degrees, which really do look uh, slightly different. Well, what I think about the two-degree target is that I do think it has become a very useful shorthand. But I do think we have to be a bit careful about the shorthand because we it it isn't the two degree we are concerned about particularly we are concerned about some of the climate impacts associated with two degrees so so we ought to think more about the risks involved i think uh, and the, i do think the way that i'd like to think about it is that has the as the world's temperature goes up and up and as it goes up by about 0.1 degrees, the risks go up commensurately with that. So we have a lot of evidence that do say a lot of the climate impact we experience to get up with the surface temperature. So therefore, for every 0.1 degree of increase in surface temperature, we expect the risk to go up, whether that be of forest fires 
whether it be of torrential rainfall or whether it be of sea level rise. And in fact, the sea level rise one is a bit different than the others because that doesn't just go, go up with the temperature. That continues to go up and up and up once the temperature has stopped going up. So we have to be particularly concerned about the sea level rise changes. So that is why the Paris Agreement did begin to talk about these one and a half degree temperature targets and that was really put into the agreement by the low-lying islands we're really passionate about trying to push for the one and a half degree temperature target. Absolutely. I think the target uh, really depends on what uh, aspect of climate change and its impacts you care about, uh, in a sense. So, for example, you know, we're already seeing climate changes and impacts at one degree of warming that we've already had. Um, there was uh, a report recently about coral reefs, the Great Barrier Reef, suffering sort of a quarter or a third of degradation um, and, you know, a lot of uncertainty about how much recovery is possible, but potentially um, up to two degrees of warming could has, has been predicted to potentially um, degrade up to 60% uh, of, of coral reef. Arctic sea ice, um, if you exceed two degrees, it's been um, predicted that uh, it will be nearly ice-free um, in the September minimum. Uh, and so if, if coral reefs or Arctic sea ice are the things that you are most uh, concerned about, or if you live in, um, as we've had, low-lying islands, uh, you know, and, and worrying about sea level rise, you, you might be uh, concerned about a lower target. It may be that if you are concerned about other things, that uh, a different target is appropriate. And it, and it really does depend on the aspect of climate change and its impacts you're thinking about. So at this point, uh, now, there, so there is a tangible difference between a 1.5C limit and a 2C limit. Uh, but but is that enough? Are we are we in a situation where any improvement is valuable at this point, or is it more that uh, if we don't achieve that two C limit at very least, uh, then we're somehow beyond the point of no return? Because that is how it's presented in sort of various camps. Well, I think humans are not about to die out. You know, we're um, we're uh, in general. Um, there are enough wealthy people in this world who can either adapt or then help others to adapt. Um, you know, we're obviously an inventive species. So we're not, we're not about to die out anytime soon, uh, if that's what you mean by the point of no return. Yes, but thank you. Is, you know, the most important thing is to think about um, climate change in terms of risk. And you, there are two aspects to risk. There's the um, probability of a bad thing happening, uh, so you can try to reduce um, climate change itself. And then there's the severity of the impacts. You know, what is our vulnerability to climate change or the vulnerability of different species than ours? Um, what is our exposure to climate change, you know, living by the sea, for example? And so, you know, it's not an on-off switch, you know, good, bad, uh, solve climate change or don't, don't solve climate change. Right. It's really about reducing risk where you can. I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, and then I would also like to add that I think it becomes rather rather dangerous just to be fixated on trying to achieve a particular temperature target because if you really are fixated by getting the earth down to a certain temperature you could begin to conceive of some 
quite radical technology to try and get you there. And and one thing that's being talked about in some communities is the idea of geoengineering or climate engineering, where in fact you deliberately try and make the earth more reflective to sunlight. So you put mirrors in space or put particles up in the atmosphere to reflect the sunlight to cool the earth temperature down by a purely technological solution. Uh, and I think some of the technologies are really quite frightening in terms of the side effects they could intervene with. So do, I do think being fixated on a temperature target is probably not a good idea. We ought to be, we ought to be more concerned with mitigating the risks of our impact. Absolutely, and um, something like uh, trying to increase the reflectivity of the Earth. Of course, while it might tackle um, temperature, it can have uh, different impacts on precipitation, which are difficult to predict. Uh, it can perhaps reduce um, rainfall around the world on average, but also it doesn't do anything to tackle the effects of CO2 dissolving in the, the world's oceans. And that uh, has effects on the pH of the water, which affects things like it contributes to the degradation of things like coral reefs and other uh, other life. So by focusing too much on a single number and a single aspect of climate change, you might um, end up ignoring other aspects that are just as important, if not more so. Piers, Tamsin, you've actually made this far more understandable. Thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you for your time. And we've linked to our guests at scienceforthepeople.ca. And next up, we'll be speaking to two more guests about the contents of the Paris Climate Agreement and what it means for all of us. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and we've been talking about the science behind the Paris Climate Agreement. And I'm joined now by two guests who can tell us a bit more about the political side. With me is Yamid Danyat, a senior associate with the World Resources Institute's Collective Climate Action Objective. She worked on the ACT 2015 project on the design of the Paris Agreement, and she's now leading the implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement at WRI. Also with me is Richard Black, a science and environment correspondent with BBC News for 10 years, and he's now the director of the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, a think tank based in London, dedicated to improving understanding on climate and energy issues. Good to have you here, Yamid and Richard. Thank you. Good to be here. Indeed. Hello, everyone. Now, just to give us some background, uh, Paris wasn't the first time we tried to get together and come to an agreement on climate change, was it? No, by, by no means. Paris was the uh, 21st, by some counts, um, time that the, 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 convention of, uh, the UN Convention on Climate Change had met. 
The previous really big one, I think, that most people will be familiar with was the Copenhagen summit of, of 2009. That was the last time uh, politicians attempted to agree a really massive uh, global deal. Um, Paris was a very different. I mean, first of all, it was a success. And Copenhagen, by, by most uh, accounts, was a failure. Why was it a success? I think there are a number of different reasons. First of all, all of the major countries clearly wanted a deal, which wasn't the case in Copenhagen. Secondly, climate impacts were becoming more visible around the world, which concentrated the minds of a lot of governments and public opinion was clearly also in favour of a deal. Thirdly, you had uh, the prices of renewable energy and so on clearly coming down in a dramatic way, which makes the clean energy transition that's necessary uh, to, to prevent dangerous climate change seem more realistic. And then I think the fourth thing was that the conference was uh, the processes behind it were managed really well that the french did a fantastic job uh diplomatically you had the u.s and china uh showing real leadership and, and making clear that they as countries responsible for almost half the world's greenhouse gas emissions really wanted a deal so a very different situation and a very different outcome definitely i would add a few things i think we need to remember also the kyoto protocol it was one of the very first after the the convention on climate change was agreed in 1992 countries met and agreed this kyoto protocol the difference with paris is that it was not universal it was binding only developed countries you know the oecd countries mainly um you to take leadership and to take concrete action to uh, curb uh, their emissions. And uh, that, that's really uh, something to remember because what we got with Paris is uh, the realization that all countries are part of the solutions. And uh, from the smallest islands uh, to the biggest countries like uh, the US and China, uh, they're all in, in the game to both mitigate and adapt to climate change. Um, in addition, and, and yes, I can talk a little bit more about what I believe would be, can be perceived as uh, factors of success compared to Copenhagen. You mentioned all countries. So who did participate mm -hmm. in the, the Paris climate talks? It's not even all countries. It's all key actors. I think what we have seen in Copenhagen is that not all uh, actors were mobilized. You didn't have the faith-based community or the pop intervene, uh, like you know we saw in the run in the run-up to Paris. So I think the dimension of non-state actors is pretty amazing and should not be uh, understated. So you had really the business, private sector, uh, faith-based community, the civil so the, you know the civil society, of course, all the parliamentarians. We had uh, also some meet with 400 parliamentarians from all over the world. Uh, the cities have made uh, a pretty, have actually led uh, ambition, you know, since uh, Copenhagen in a dramatic, uh, dr drastic way. So I think those actors, and I'm sure that I am uh, missing a few, you know, should not be, should really be acclaimed. I think what uh, the presidencies, uh, especially from from the Peruvian uh, till Paris, have done is really with the support of the of Christiana Figueres and the UNFCCC Secretariat and Ban Ki Moon, have been to really mobilize and galvanize uh, the groundswell of actions uh, to demonstrate that things are really uh, taking off on you know from the ground. Um, obviously, uh, I think in Paris, no country were in excluded. All countries were there. I think, you know, the only actors that I may think of that were not as involved, maybe because more 
skeptical or the or companies. But apart from that, it was a very universal uh, mobilization. And it was amazing to see, uh, and I think Richard said it before, the way the French managed um, the, the negotiations and the summit was pretty historical and quite amazing because when you have to manage 196 uh, different national in interests and to make sure that those who you have uh, been portraying as disruptors of you know an agreement in the past become actors of this agreement was pretty uh, was not easy to do but it was really a game changer and I will give you an example uh, in Copenhagen uh, you had Venezuela really opposing uh, this deal because it was simply not ambitious enough and the negotiator you know had uh, you know was given portfolio to really uh, get all countries to agree on the preamble which if you look at the preamble of the Paris Agreement it's quite ambitious very with a societal economical environmental and people dimension uh, that has not been uh, seen before and I think giving them empowering them to really act to have everybody to play a role in 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 getting an agreement that is as ambitious and and people oriented and 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 practical as possible was was uh, was really a game changer so yes i would say that all and even the all companies were welcome it was really uh, uh, um, a summit for everyone yeah if i can just pick up on one thing that yamid said with which i completely agree um, you had different communities across the world who were all pressing for a deal. So, for example, the parts of def defence and security community, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly pressing for a deal. You had doctors in the medical community through the Lancet Commission pressing for a deal. Above all, you had the religious community. You know, the papal encyclical was an amazingly transformative thing. Every major faith basically urged making a deal. And it was very difficult then for those recalcitrant um, countries to go anywhere else. And this is, this is one other thing which may seem very trivial, but actually is quite important. The French provided really good food and people were going around <laughs> with smiles on their faces, right? which that may seem, may seem a trivial thing, but, but happy diplomats make deals and unhappy diplomats don't. <laughs> the logistics matters, I agree. It was, uh, it was better. <laughs> well, what, what were the major points of disagreement? Because I understand there was a lot of agreement, which is lovely to see, but, but there were, there was definitely major disagreement around some specific points, correct? Yes, there was. And uh, having been, um, actually, I was uh, a member of a delegation uh, during Paris uh, with the LDCs. And differentiation was uh, a major uh, source of contention. As you know, it was supposed, you know, we, everybody was working on an universal deal. But the issue of uh, common but differentiated uh, responsibilities and respective capabilities, this equity dimension was really uh, at the heart of the debate. Uh, so how to bring everybody in, but still acknowledging different stages of development, different national circumstances, and the fact that uh, developed countries, you know, based on historical grounds, should still take the lead, and because also of their capability, should also, uh, it was another reason for, for them to take the lead. So how to craft an agreement that acknowledged that, but still bring everybody's in to have on a common journey 
company that is as ambitious as possible. I think that was really one of the crux of the of of, of the debate here, and that was that that lasted until the final hours. And the two provisions where this was uh, particularly uh, felt, and 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 the two provisions. Uh, that was uh, that that was last agreed were transparency. So how to make sure that countries are doing what they said that they would be doing, um, and 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 also the the financial the finance provisions. Uh, how to make sure that yes, we still have uh, developed countries taking the lead, but providing opportunities to open the pool of contributors and. Still making sure that uh, developing countries in need get the support they need to fulfill with their requirements. At the same time, how to bring something that is aligned with uh, a, a goal, a financial goals that actually shift um, uh, uh, the, the investment uh, towards a low carbon and climate resilient uh, society. The the other issue, in addition to uh, transparency and finance, was loss and damage. Uh, this is an issue that always been, it's not new, it's been brought especially by small islands and these developed countries from the beginning of uh, the climate uh, negotiations under the convention, but it really resurfaced, resurfaced in, a, in a big way in Warsaw and then in Paris we knew that what was at stake was how to deal with the compensation and liability issue and that spiced up the, the, the negotiation also considerably and it's it's good to see that the deal was made to address to, to, to balance uh, some of the requirements from developed and developing countries in in definitely seeing this issue having a proper space um, to be discussed and and to be uh, pushed and progress forward and and at the same time acknowledging some of the constraints from some uh, political constraints from some developed countries you know, for them to be able to actually sign this deal, uh, not to cross too many red lines, especially in the case of the U.S. Um, so I think these three issues were probably the most contentious. Um, and yes, I'm happy to go more into the details, but that's a kind of overview, I think, of what I felt the most contentious issues. Yeah, I'd, if if we were to do a Venn diagram, I'd also pick out three issues, and one of one of them would uh, I'd, I'd agree with Yamid as the top three, which was the loss and damage. And the issue is very simple, really, here. Um, for people that don't follow, follow this intricately, it's probably just worth putting on the table what this actually means. Um, emissions from developed countries, the ones that industrialize first, um, you know, have caused a certain amount of damage, which is inescapable, which you, which you cannot prevent now to some of the most vulnerable countries. So basically, should those rich countries um, pay for that in, in some way? And we're talking here about uh, the US, the UK, and Germany as the countries with the sort of top uh, top three uh, in terms of historical emissions bound to be contentious when you think about it. The other two issues that I think uh, were quite contentious and and sort of partially resolved. One was the issue of what the temperature destination should be, the temperature target. Um, a lot of the smaller developing countries were very very keen to have 1.5 Celsius rather than two Celsius 
as the new norm. And in the end, that's in the agreement as an aspiration. It's not a firm target. Um, and there is a, a big mismatch here, really, in the whole Paris uh, outcome in the sense that you have these twin temperature targets, a target of well below two Celsius with an aspiration for 1.5 Celsius. But if you add together the commitments that individual countries have made in terms of reducing emissions, you can't get to either of those uh, goals. Um, and then the, th the third issue I would pick out, which is in a sense the most profound, uh, I think is the what's called the long-term goal. I mean, you could uh, scientists and experts come up with all kinds of very, very detailed scenarios and projections for how you have to reduce uses of um, fossil fuels uh, in the future in order to meet any goal that you pick out, 2 Celsius or 1.5 Celsius or whatever. But you can essentially boil that down to a single thing. You have to stop using fossil fuels. Right. You know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put this forward very, very clearly in their last report. But of course, for some of the states that their whole income relies on producing fossil fuels, this is a deeply contentious issue. And uh, the Saudis and some of the other Gulf states were very, very reluctant to have a long-term goal in there. But it is in there. It's in a slightly fudged form. But essentially, if you boil this down, you know, essentially we are talking about countries having agreed to eliminate fossil fuel use at some point in the second half of this century. And that's quite profound. So how quickly will countries need to act to keep in step with the goals of the agreement? I think there are two separate issues I'd like to bring out here. One is simply getting the Paris Agreement into action. So legally, it comes into force when 55 countries, uh, accounting for at least 55% of global emissions, have ratified or whatever each one needs to do because each country's you know political system is different i think there's quite an urgent quite a need to get that done quite urgently frankly because there are a few quite important governments where you can see backsliding is possible you know in the u.s context for example if it's not done under the obama presidency it probably won't be done under a trump presidency um, that is what a about terrifying, Russia? terrifying statement, sir. Uh, it's <laughs> absolutely possible. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it, it, uh, that's why the Obama administration and John Kerry are absolutely determined that they are going to get it done right. before President Obama leaves office. But there are other countries that, you know, you can't immediately see. Well, you can, you can, you can create scenarios where there are problems ahead. What about Russia, for example? All kinds of geopolitical issues. Could could Russia sort of withhold? Uh, ratification as a bargaining chip, presumably it could. Um, if Europe's not that stable, you know, we, if we have a sort of British exit um, and you have an increased domination of those climate sceptic countries in Europe, such as Poland in the debate, could you have a situation where the EU didn't ratify? I, I think it's unlikely, but I think you can construct that scenario if, if you wish. So that, that's one thing. More profoundly, in order to meet those temperature goals well below 2 Celsius or 1.5 Celsius, um, you're basically talking about developed countries um, switching to low-carbon electricity systems within the next kind of 15, 20 years, rolling out electricity into areas such as transport and heating within the next 20 or so years. And the same thing sort of happening in developing countries uh, slightly later. For developing countries, really, the issue, I think, is leapfrogging. You know, a lot of them don't have to go through the sort of fossil fuel era that Western countries have gone through. And indeed, you can see that in a lot of the plans 
that uh, developing countries, you know, Bangladesh, Pakistan, whatever, put forward. Well, not so much Pakistan, actually. Certainly Bangladesh, India, um, and some of the Southeast Asian countries put forward. That leapfrogging is kind of implicit. Um, one of the other things that the Paris Agreement does is to liberate uh, $100 uh, billion dollars, uh, per year. Um, some of which will go towards helping those poor those uh, poorer countries to um, install clean energy systems. Yes, I would just add uh, in terms of timing, I, I totally agree with uh, with Richard that developing countries have a bit more time to, to pace their transformation. Uh, but I would just flag that at the same time, the opportunity to leapfrog is now. I mean, decisions regarding the infrastructure of those countries are b- being made now in the next you know, uh, between now and the next uh, 10 years, 10 to 15 years. So making sure that uh, we don't wait that much, you know, to make the right choices is absolutely necessary. And and I think the narrative about the benefits and opportunity of actions, you know, for a, a much better world, uh, you know, for well-being for the whole society is something uh, that we need to be further entertained and maintained and actually uh, even supported, uh, more visualized. That's important. I just, I think the urgency, I would just press for the urgency, uh, you know, some of the action needed to be done yesterday and is becoming more costly, not to act, uh, I think some. I think what what happens in Paris is the most vulnerable uh, countries, uh, which were a little bit left out of the Copenhagen deal, you know, really came together strongly to say, hey, in in ten years, some of us uh, may not be may not have land uh, to when we come back on the table and see how far we have been. And this is why also in addition to the long-term goal, they have been pushing for a cycle of uh, review and progression on 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 in terms of ambition every five years. And I think that was uh, pretty transformative as well. It's, it's good to have those uh, long-term goals, but at the same time you need uh, near-term uh, policy signals also for the investment communities and policymakers. And I think uh, what Paris has been doing is to do those. And I think the, the, the challenge for countries is to bring the urgency um, and especially for developing countries to align their long-term opportunities with their urgent needs. Uh, you know, how, how to mainstream climate in their poverty and development strategies. I think this is, you know, that nexus actually between the sustainable development and climate agenda is going to be really important. And we should not uh, f- forget that last year was an incredible historical year because we also, ahead of Paris, agreed the sustainable development goals. And I think we need to bring that also in context. And sustainable development is not just for developing countries. It's actually, there's a few challenges also for developed countries. So how to make this happen and how to align those national plans that we see from develop from from all countries in their what they call national uh, nationally determined contributions with all those cooperative actions uh, initiatives that have been pledged in Paris like mission innovation the solar alliance you know that brings so many countries and different state actors to really be integrated into the national policies that's going to be the challenge moving forward. Too. Well, and that's exactly my question. You you mentioned how. So that that is my question is how what what kind of strategies might we see coming out of this? 
the Paris Agreement is pushing for long-term strategies, uh, mid-century strategies. They are not, uh, they're voluntary, but I think this is something that is uh, quite important to try to, to get countries to see how they're really going to transform the economy in the long term. And uh, Canada and, and the US have been pledging to do their own strategy by, uh, by the end of the year. But some other countries have engaged into such kind of uh, scenario uh, exercise like you know the UK with their 2050 calculator um, you know the EU and many other countries including China to try to see what it means in the long term and I think um, you know there's going to be different um, different take of what those mean century strategy means it should not be seen just as a modeling exercise it could be also a qualitative uh, exercise a political exercise and and, and how, again, the, the nexus with the sustainable development agenda is very important. At the same time, other countries uh, need to start imp to implement uh, what they committed to ahead of Paris, you know, their nationally determined uh, contribution. Uh, but some of them hope, you know, it, it, it's good to see that some of them already um, uh, identified opportunities to review upwards, you know, to review their ambition up, like, you know, Argentina and, and maybe other countries to, to see whether they can even by the time they register, um, their, their national contribution in, within the UNFCCC that, that it, to make sure that their national plan is even stronger. So I think, uh, and, and we have this cycle every five years. And I think one of the challenges for countries to put in place the mechanisms, the national mechanism, to inform with evidence, with good evidence, their policy designs and the policy implementation. What the UNFCCC, uh, the multilateral world is bringing is a space to share experience and best practice and to, to also avoid doing the same mistakes as, you know, others and to learn how to leapfrog, to, to learn definitely how not to do the same mistakes. So I think there's a huge opportunity to to, to learn. It's, it's going to be a learning journey, uh, but one of boldness as well. And, and uh, to, to align the short termism with the long term, uh, kind of the long term aspirations and the clam, mainstreaming climate into the sustainable development agenda and bringing all actors, integrating the groundswell of actions with all actors, how to make sure that actually some states and cities are doing so much are they really captured uh, into the, the national inventories well, or is it that's yeah. really one of my questions now we keep using the word voluntary <laughs> so so what does this mean can, can we talk about accountability uh, because is there anything uh, penalties fines diplomatic sanctions anything like that uh, Richard that will force nope. people nope okay <laughs> nope certainly no, certainly no fines or sanctions no not at all and this is one of the lessons from Copenhagen is that if if you try to do that, it ain't going to work. Um, the implementation is largely going to be in the hands of national uh, governments. Now, of course, there's there'll be naming and shaming, and one can envisage that there will be diplomatic pressure. Um, you know, a friendly uh, a friendly nod here, and uh, so on and so forth. The uh, the hundred billion per year that I mentioned earlier, which will probably go up in 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 years to come. You know, that's a tiny, tiny uh, sizable sum of money, and. Uh, 
if developing countries want to get that, they're, they're going to have to show, you know, how the money is going to be spent and, and so on and so forth. But I think, I mean, Yamid referred earlier to infrastructure change. And I think that's the really big thing. You know, essentially, tackling climate change, if you want to boil it down to a single thing, is you build low carbon stuff rather than high carbon stuff. And I think that the for when people when countries are now contemplating what they're going to do that's new, you know the stereotypical example being: do we build a coal-fired power station or do we build uh, a giant solar uh, number of giant solar farms and 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 reckon we can get some storage uh, and so on in a few years' time? The choice is increasingly to do the clean energy thing. And we're seeing that now because the sums of money that are being invested, you know, in clean electricity uh, stuff around the year, com- around the world comfortably exceeds what's going into fossil fuel electricity stuff. So that's already a, a, a bit of a win. Um, and we'll see the same thing. I think the same thing happen, for example, with electric cars and so on down the line. A much harder issue, particularly for developed countries, is getting rid of the high carbon stuff that we already have. Because when you have a city, and I, I live in London, um, many dwellings in London are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. They're poorly insulated. You can't really do things that you would like to do, such as, you know, for example, sort of um, district heating schemes. It's just impossible. So it takes a lot for governments, a lot of willpower for governments to sort of tackle that kind of high carbon, old fashioned sort of wasteful stuff that we have. So we're seeing, for example, just since Paris, you know, China's had a uh, clamp down. It's, it's basically put a moratorium on building new coal fired power stations in most of its provinces. Vietnam's reviewing its coal building plans. The incoming Philippines government is, is reviewing its coal building plans. These are all great things and they're really important and shows, I think, that, you know, Paris is, is potentially quite transformative. But in one sense, they're quite easy to do because it's about building one type of new stuff instead of a different type of new stuff. And the big big challenge, you know, including for countries such as Canada that are established is really how do you get rid of that old carbon, that old high carbon stuff? Well, and one of the things that, that we actually didn't mention that I have uh, heard some concern about when we're talking about the Paris Climate Agreements is uh, a lot of people thought that it, it really failed to adequately address uh, vulnerable countries and their losses due to climate change. Any thoughts on that? I think the divorce is in the details and it was important to really keep everybody's in uh, and Const- Paris is about setting the vision and setting, you know, the trajectory uh, giving guidance to you know where we're going now it's really about how we make it happen so all the details are going to be crafted in the next two four years uh, before the this Paris agreement enters into force truly or before the first you know cop uh, under this agreement it's very important to think that it's unfinished business in, in some sense that there's really opportunity to make it better, stronger. On, on loss and damage, I would just add that, yes, the, the fact that there's a clause for vulnerable countries that there's, they, they cannot, there's not going to be liability or compensation, um, you know, was a big deal maybe for them. But some of them felt that the most important outcome was to create that space to actually do something concrete to cooperate truly together uh, with all the all the actors in this field to to really help vulnerable countries 
to address those losses, you know, when adaptations to adaptation and to really core to see how to uh, to address the loss and, and damages. So it's really, I think, the cooperative signals. I think there's there's been, um, I think, a, a task force on um, displacement has been set up. This is the first time uh, that the issue of migrations and displacements had had been really raised to such a political level. It was not uh, the case uh, before and we will need to see how this task force that is being set up uh, what's it's going to be doing it's about again implementation I think we created the we, 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 we the seed we've got the seeds here to do some things that never been done before and I hope that uh, all actors will embrace that to, to make it work effectively. Is it safe to say that both of you are actually quite optimistic about the future of this process? Well, speaking for myself, um, I am up to optimistic. I, you know, it was never going to be solved at one summit, one agreement, and, you know, one expects that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years' time, there will still be bits of the picture that remain to be worked out because this is a fundamental... We're talking about a fundamental trans- transformation of the way that the global economy works the end of fossil fuels you know which is kind of where we're going plus big sort of transformations in the sort of you know adaptation and compensation space well let's not say compensation but loss and damage space these are quite profound transformations but yeah i think the the un climate convention nearly died after copenhagen and it's now not only back on its feet it's roaring like a like a newly restored lion, which is fantastic. Out in the real world, substantial things are take are starting to take place. You know, I was mentioning China earlier on. If you look at China's sort of development plans for for its energy system, you know, it's not coal fired power stations. It's not even gas. It's a clean energy system, and you pretty much know that China will deliver. You look around other countries in the world, you know, Denmark, for example, uh, 40% of its electricity from renewables, uh, Norway, electric cars leading the market. You know, there are all these indications around the world of substantial transformations. Look at some of the Pacific islands committed to 100% renewable energy. They're going to get there. The issue is timing. You know, science sets a timescale for the um, scaling down and elimination of fossil fuels if you want to reach 1.5 or, or, or below 2 Celsius. That you can't pin it down to an individual year, an individual trajectory. There's too much uncertainty in understanding precisely how the climate system responds. But it sets you a tight timescale. It's on a timescale of decades. And that, I think, is the big question, is whether this transformation can be made to happen on, on a timescale of really a few decades that enables you to um, keep the temperature change down and prevent some of the major damages. I mean, we know there are going to be damages. That's inescapable. But prevent some of the really sort of major, serious, irreversible damages out there. Yes, and I am also optimistic as as Richard. I agree 100% with what you just said. I would just say that the, the, the good story about it is that the deniers cannot say that things are not happening on the ground. Even when you look at the American context, they cannot say that developing countries are not acting anymore uh, because everything that Richard has highlighted things are already happening it's not in the future and what we've seen after Copenhagen I would just you know take this opportunity to really you know say why Paris was a success also and and why I am so optimistic is yes you had this Cancun Cup after Copenhagen that restored faith in the uh, multilateral system then you know in in 
in in Warsaw you had uh, in Durban you 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 had these cops that really try to bring everybody's in in a universal agreement you know to move from you know two different worlds uh, bifurcated approach to one world uh, you know we still caveats and provisions on equity um, and then you've got Doha that brought you know this issue of you know so dear to vulnerable countries like loss and damage into the fore and you had you know the the Lima, uh, the COP in Lima, that really, uh, after the, the climate action, the climate uh, march and, and, and summit uh, brought by, the, by Ban Ki-moon, uh, this uh, COP actually really formalized uh, in this agenda the role of non-state actors and uh, the groundswell of, 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 of actions. And I think all of this was to demonstrate that things happen on the grounds and there's no time to be about you know who does not what I think it's actually about not being left behind the, the hope is that this this agreement is really going to generate a race to the top and 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 for even some old companies to this to, to, to think carefully how they can still remain the energy provider in the future because some some things are changing uh, some decisions are made and they need to think about what is being now considered as as a stranded assets, uh, they they have to get their infrastructure, their investment resilient as well. So that that other side of of resilience, things are changing, and they cannot say that it's not the case anymore. So yeah, let's let's make it a, a, an empowering journey. It's really to make sure that in this journey, it is equitable, that everybody's in, and people are not left behind. I I just wanted to you know to to really take this opportunity to highlight how many things have been happening in the background and I and it, it is very important uh, and to pay tribute to the role of Christiana Figueres. I think she had uh, a very challenging task, you know, after Copenhagen to really bring you know, the whole negotiating process and multilateral process back on track and to support uh, the journey of negotiators and all policymakers and leaders in getting an agreement that is very ambitious and and to make it, I think, her vision to really bring uh, wider stakeholders was really unparalleled. And this was also with the support of Ban Ki-moon. I think he made a climate uh, a personal journey. And it's very, I take a bit of time to say this because, you know, we're going, those people are going to continue on another journey and it's very important for their successors to, to really continue uh, to fulfill uh, the, the ambitions that they have uh, managed to, to, to really uh, start to get on the ground. And I think I just wanted to, to really pay tribute to, to this climate queen and climate king that really made the difference uh, to the world. Well, thanks very much to both of you for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I'd also like to thank Jacqueline Gill at the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine for some brilliant additional research assistance this week. And you can find links to all of our guests on our our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. 
Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Thank you.